guys. I like that song a lot. I like all the songs on that album. Uh, it's beautiful and it's true. It's good. And uh, one of my favorite parts of that song is when it says, behold the sin of man. Like there's a, there's a little bit about really thinking deeply about our sin. And then it says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Like the more we understand our sinfulness and God's holiness, the more we will appreciate that the Lamb of God has taken away our sin. And we want to praise him for that today. Do you have your Bible with you? If you do, you need to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. That's where we're going to start. Um, we're going to be kind of all over the place in God's word today. As you're turning there, I want to remind you of two things I said last week as we started this short Advent sermon series. First, we must fight for Christmas joy this year. Uh, especially this year, there's a lot against us at this time. And we have an enemy who would love to see us completely distracted this Christmas. So I'm inviting you to join me in fighting for joy this year. Second, I told you that we're taking a break from our normal approach to preaching, which we call expositional preaching, for a short-term snack of topical preaching about Jesus as the long-awaited and far superior prophet, priest, and king. And I hope that not many of you took my comments about snacks last week as permission to eat absolutely anything and everything you want to eat this past, this past week. Like Sometimes I worry that my words are uh, unexpectedly applied uh, to certain situations. Like, I hope that you didn't say, Pastor Chris said snacks are good. Uh, I hope that you didn't say, Pastor Dylan eats cookies for breakfast. Um, and like pattern your life after that. Be reasonable, people. Uh, last week, we looked at Jesus as the long-awaited and far superior prophet. He is the one who brings the word of God to the people of God in a way that Old Testament prophets could not. He is the one who himself is the word made flesh. The one who perfectly reveals the Father to us, not just in what he says, but also in everything he does. And even beyond that, he perfectly reveals the Father to us in who he is. He is, his is the perfect ministry of revelation. And if all of this is true, all of those things that we talked about are true, and they are, then what should we do? We should listen to him. If he is the perfect revelation, if he is the word made flesh, if he is the far superior prophet, then we should listen to him. Remember the scene we saw on the Mount of Transfiguration? The greatest of all time are there. The greatest prophets, Moses and Elijah, are there. And yet when the Father speaks from the cloud, he says, This is my son. You listen to him. And then Jesus alone remains. Moses and Elijah are taken away from the scene. We want to listen to Jesus. And what did Jesus say? He said, The kingdom is here, so repent and believe. He said, follow me, leave it all, take up your cross, follow me. And he said, go and make disciples of all the nations. And we want to listen to him, not just hear what he says, but obey what he has commanded. I want to remind you before we get started today about the three offices of the Old Testament. I think we've got a slide about this. Three offices that we're looking at that Jesus fulfills in a great way. The prophet brings the word of God to the people of God. His is a revealing ministry. The priest connects the people of God with the presence of God. That's what we're going to talk about today. He serves as a mediator with one hand on the people and one hand on God to bring them together. And when he brings them together, sacrifice is necessary. Sacrifice is necessary to bring together sinful man with holy God. We're going to talk about that a lot today, that reconciling ministry of the priest. And then we will talk next week about the king who brings the rule of God over the people of God. His is a reigning ministry. 
And I told you that when I think about those offices, I see them most clearly from Saul forward. Uh, in the history of the Old Testament, once Saul is anointed as king over Israel, we see those three offices really clearly separated, distinct, and defined. But we know that they are revealed even before that. And I wonder if any of you had a good time at lunch last week talking about how do we see in Genesis 1 through 3, Adam functioning as prophet, priest, and king in the garden. Maybe you recognized him as prophet because he shares the word of God with Eve. Eve is not around when the Lord tells Adam, you can eat from any tree except this one, and if you eat from this one, you will die. And evidently, he served as the prophet to communicate that to Eve because when the serpent tempts her, she says, no, the Lord, the Lord said this. She knows what the Lord has said because Adam told her. We see him functioning as the king in ruling over the creation and giving names to things. He's functioning as the one who brings the reign of God over creation. The priest deal is a little bit more difficult. And maybe you talked about that, how the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 especially is the place where God dwells. There is access to the presence of God. We see the presence of God in a special way, and Adam is enjoying that presence. And the words that are used for the work that he does there are the same two words that are used to describe the work that happens in the tabernacle later on. There's very much a link, a priestly link with Adam in the Garden of Eden. I hope that was fun for you uh, at lunchtime. This week, we're going to follow a really similar pattern that we followed last week, only we will be focusing on Jesus as the long-awaited and far superior priest. And one of the key texts we want to look at today and kind of hang over our whole study today is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, which says this, There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. That role of the priest is one of mediation. There is one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. And we want to learn that today and appreciate it more and more. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus to be our mediator, to be our great high priest, to be the mediator between us in all of our sin and you in all of your righteousness. Help us today to understand and appreciate the priestly ministry of Jesus. But more than that, teach us today to depend completely on his work of reconciliation to bring us into right relationship with you. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen. So let's start with the first question of the day. What does the priest do? Well, we've already talked about this a little bit. He serves as the mediator between sinful man and holy God. He draws the people near to the presence of God. And he does this symbolically by bearing the people before the Lord. That's the first thing we're going to talk about, how symbolically the priest bears the people before the Lord. He stands in the presence of God, not just as an individual, not just as Frank the high priest, but rather he stands as a representative of the entire nation. And we see this clearly in the clothes that he wears. We see him bearing the people before the Lord in the clothes that he wears. Uh, we can read a lot about it, the ephod and the breast piece in Exodus chapter 28. So this is a lengthy text, and uh, really the punchline is at the very end of it. But I want you to see how detailed it is before we get there. So look at Exodus chapter 28, starting in verse 6. It says, They shall also make an ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet material, and fine twisted linen, the work of the skillful workmen. 
It shall have two shoulder pieces joined to its end, that they may be joined. The skillfully woven band which is on it shall be like its workmanship of the same material, of gold, uh, of blue, and purple, and scarlet material, and fine twisted linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone according to their birth. As a jeweler engraves a signet, you shall engrave the two stones according to the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in filigree settings of gold. You shall put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of memorial for the sons of Israel. And look at this last line. And Aaron, who is the priest, right, the very first priest... Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for a memorial. So even the garb that the high priest wears when he goes into the presence of God, a big part of that garb is this ephod that bears the names of the children of Israel on the shoulders. All right, That's one piece of his garment. Another piece of his garment is this breast piece. We can read about it also in Exodus chapter 28, starting in verse 15. God says, you shall make a breastpiece of judgment, the work of skillful workmen, like the work of the ephod, you shall make it. Of gold and blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, you shall make it. It shall be square and folded double, a span in length and a span in width. You shall mount on it four rows of stone. The first row shall be a row of ruby, topaz, and emerald. And the second row, a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. I'm reading all of this to you because it's going to come back up later in Revelation. You're going to see some of this same language. And uh, you're also going to see it in the construction of the tabernacle. Verse 21 says, The stones shall be according to the names of the sons of Israel, twelve according to their names. They shall be like the engravings of a seal, each according to his name for the twelve tribes. You shall make on the breastpiece chains of twisted cordage work in pure gold. You shall make on the breastpiece two rings of gold, and you shall put the two rings on the two ends of the breastpiece. You shall put the two cords of the gold on the two rings at the ends of the breastpiece. You shall put the other two ends of the cords on the two filigree settings and put them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod at the front of it. So this thing hangs off of the ephod. You shall make two gold rings and shall place them on the two ends of the breastpiece on the edge of it, which is toward the inner side of the ephod. You shall make two, gold, two rings of gold and put them on the bottom of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod on the front of it, close to the place where, the, where it is joined, above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. They shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a blue cord so that it will be on skillfully woven band of the ephod and the breastpiece will not come loose from the ephod. Look at verse 29. This is the punchline. Aaron shall carry, Aaron the priest shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. So part of the garb that he's wearing has the names of the people of God on his shoulders, bearing them up on his shoulders and over his heart, close to his heart as he goes in before the Lord. In other words, he symbolically bears the people before the Lord he stands before the presence of God, not just as an individual, but as the representative, the representative of the entire nation. He not only represents the people before the Lord, he also represents the Lord before the people. 
This is a little bit uh, a more difficult thing to see, but he represents the presence of God to the people. These priests, especially the high priest, was set apart as holy unto the Lord. Their process of consecration was intense and super detailed. I'm not going to get into all of the details, but you can read about it in Exodus chapter 29. So after these great descriptions of all the garb that he's going to wear, the next chapter talks about how these guys are set apart from the rest of the people. They are declared holy and separated from the people. There is a lot of sacrifice that is offered in that process. There are a lot of sacrifices given unto the Lord as Aaron and his descendants are set apart as priests. There's also some ritual bathing. They have to get clean, uh, like physically clean as they are set apart. They get some new... They get all these new clothes that are described in chapter 28, and they also get some new undergarments that you can read about that are highly significant, and I would encourage you to check those out later on. And there's this bizarre scene in the process of setting these guys apart where blood from the sacrifices is placed on the big toe of their right foot, the thumb of their right hand, and the earlobe of their right ear. Do you remember reading that? Don't remember reading that? That's usually where people kind of check out in their process of reading through the Bible in a year. Like you get to this kind of stuff and you're like, speed the guy up so he reads faster and we can get through it. And I've always thought, when I read that, about the blood on the right toe, the right thumb, and the right earlobe, I always thought, this is just the Lord pressing it with the people. Like, why, why are we doing this? Because I said so. That's kind of the way I always thought was going on there. Because I feel like there's some of that going on in the Old Testament. Like he doesn't have to explain himself why. Just do what I tell you to do. But maybe there is some interesting symbolism in the toe, the thumb, and the ear that is set apart for these guys. That's one of those things I would encourage you to look into on your own time. Maybe find some interesting stuff there. So they are set apart, consecrated, declared holy Uh, different from the people. They are given these new clothes. These new clothes that the priests are given are unusual. Like everyday Joe wasn't wearing this kind of clothes. They were expensive. We read about the fine linen and the gold and all of these uh, materials, blue and purple and scarlet. Those colors were not easy to make in those days. Uh, Kings and priests are basically the only ones who wear those kind of clothes. Um, And they were beautiful. And these clothes that were given to the priests were only to be worn in their service to the Lord around the tabernacle or the temple. Like they didn't get to wear those home. They didn't wear them out when they were playing basketball or whatever. These clothes that they were given uh, were were to set them apart for their service unto the Lord. And what I want to specifically draw your attention to, and part of why we read so much a little while ago, to get to the fact that they're bearing the names of the people on their shoulders and their hearts, When you read about those clothes, even just the ephod and the breast piece, the kind of materials that are used are the very same materials that are used in the construction of the tabernacle itself. The very place where God dwells among his people, they are wearing that same kind of stuff. And so very much everything about the consecration and the dress of the priest, the high priest in particular, is to represent and symbolize the presence of God among the people. It's like he is walking holiness. It's like the priest is walking holiness, representing God among the people. So that when you looked at the high priest, you saw something of the holiness of God. Now, I will admit that is very shadowy. 
It is very shadowy in the Old Testament how he represents the very presence of God amongst the people. But it's shadowy so that we can see Jesus more clearly in the New Testament. Because if you get a glimpse of the holiness of God as the high priest walks by, man, you get an even clearer glimpse of the holiness of God when Jesus walks by. Right? We see Jesus as not just representing God among the people like the high priest does. He is God among the people. Now, all of this talk about drawing near to God, the high priest bringing the people before the presence of God, uh, representing God amongst the people, all of this requires sacrifice. And that's the second big thing we want to talk about when we talk about the priest and his ministry. Not just that he represents the people before the Lord and brings, on some level, the Lord before the people. All of that requires sacrifice. Sacrifice is absolutely required in order for sinful man to draw near to holy God. And the priest's job of offering those sacrifices was very busy. He was super busy offering sacrifices for the people unto the Lord. One of my friends, when we were talking about this this week, noticed that in all of the detail about the tabernacle, when you read through that in, in, in Leviticus, you read all about the construction of the tabernacle, you read all about the furniture that is in the tabernacle, about altars and candle, candle pieces and tables for the bread and altars and things like that. You know what you don't see in the tabernacle? You don't see a single chair. In all of the detail about the furniture and the utensils, you don't see a single chair. And that's because the priest never sat down. He was always busy because his work never ended. Now, the work that the priest did in the tabernacle and the temple was not all about atonement, but we're going to talk mostly about atonement today. Atonement means literally to make at one, and it points to the process of bringing those who are estranged into unity. Atonement is about bringing those who are on the outside to the inside, and that's what the priest did. Not every offering that the people brought, not every offering that the priest executed was an offering or a payment for sin or for the cleansing of sin. There were offerings of thanksgiving. There were offerings that were standard parts of festivals. There were praise offerings and other things like that. Not every offering that the priest was busy with was about the forgiveness of sins. But for our time today, we want to zoom in on those offerings for forgiveness. We want to zoom in on blood sacrifices for atonement. And whether we're talking about the annual Day of Atonement sacrifice or other occasional or even daily sacrifices that were brought before the Lord, we see every time when atonement is made, something stands in for the person as a substitute. Something stands in for the person as a substitute and takes their sin and dies so that atonement can be made. You catch that? Read about it all over the Old Testament. Every time atonement is made, some animal steps in, takes the sin of the person upon itself, and dies in the person's place so that atonement can be made. We can read about it in Leviticus chapter 1. Look at that with me. Leviticus chapter 1 says, Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. You catch that? 
An offering's got to be made for him to be accepted before the Lord. Verse 4, though, is absolutely key. It says, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. In other words, he puts his hand on the head of that animal so that it is going to stand in his place, so that he may be acceptable to the Lord. It will make atonement on his behalf. It says, he shall slay the young bull before the Lord, and Aaron, Aaron's sons, the priest, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So it is always to make atonement this animal must die in the place of a person. The sin is in some ways transferred to the animal and the animal dies in the place of the person to bring the estranged parties back together, to bring sinful man back into right relationship with holy God. Look at Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. This kind of explains why blood is necessary. Why a blood set, why, why can't I just pay some money and do this? Why, why are we setting it up this way with blood sacrifice? It says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So it is life for life. It's not just about blood. It's about life for life because what has sin earned people? Death, Right? And so something must die in order for people to be atoned for, uh, in order for there to be atonement. So the priest's life was occupied by making these sacrifices all day, every day, without end. Constantly offering sacrifices to quote-unquote deal with the people's sin. And it was never-ending. And it's this never-ending, never-really-working aspect that points us forward to Jesus. So how do we see the forward look to a greater one to come in the ministry of the priests? Well, even on the annual Day of Atonement sacrifice that you can read all about in Leviticus chapter 16, the annual Day of Atonement sacrifice, which made atonement for the sins of all the people, even on that day, which was the highest day of atonement for the people of God, even on that day, there was this sense of, well, that didn't really work, because we're going to have to do it next year. Like even on that great day when the sins of the people were atoned for, they immediately knew this is coming up again next year and we're going to have to start getting ready for it again next year. Uh, we've been watching a whole bunch of Christmas movies at our house recently. There is nothing else to do right now. And so we've watched every Christmas movie on Netflix and, and Amazon. And the other day, not, not yet, all of them? Almost all of them. The other day we were watching the Santa Claus. Do you remember this one? Uh, with that's a favorite with Tim Allen. Santa Claus falls off the off the roof and dies evidently, and and Tim Allen becomes Santa Claus by putting on the coat. Do you remember this movie when he goes around and he does the thing in his boxer shorts, and then he finally ends up at the North Pole after it's all done that first night. And do you remember meeting the chief elf whose name was Bernard? <laughs> All right, so, so we know we can remember little details like this. His name was Bernard. And one of the things you might remember is that he says, we've only got 364 more days to get ready for next year. Like we're talking, it's just now gotten over, and this guy is already talking about making arrangements for next year. Well, that is exactly the way it worked with the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement sacrifice is done, and the people immediately start saying, got to do it again next year. 
Got to do it again next year. So what I want you to see here is that there was this never-ending process to the sacrifices which led the people, I believe, led the people to say, can anyone offer a sacrifice that will work? Is there anyone that can offer one sacrifice that will really deal with our sins? Or are we just trapped in this never-ending, always repeating, we will constantly be having to offer sacrifices that can't really cleanse us? They don't really cleanse us because we know we've got to do it again next year. Or, or even more so, we've got to do it again tomorrow. We've got to constantly be offering these sacrifices. Is there anyone that can offer a sacrifice that will work? Yes. There is one who can offer a sacrifice that will work. And his name is Jesus Christ, right? Let me introduce you now to Jesus, the great high priest. Jesus, the greater, the greatest priest that we could ever know. And I would commend to you the entire book of Hebrews. If you're interested in what I'm going to share with you today, I would say just study Hebrews. It will unlock all of this for you. Jesus as the superior priest. Jesus is a better priest of a better covenant with a better sacrifice. A better priest, a better covenant, and a better sacrifice. Let's talk first about Jesus as the better priest. He was better priest than Aaron and his sons because he was without sin. Jesus is a superior priest because he is without sin. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are. And I'm so thankful there's not a period there. I'm so thankful that it's not just that Jesus has been tempted in every way like we are. He can sympathize with, with our weakness because he himself is weak. All those old covenant priests could say that. They were tempted in every way as we are. They can sympathize with our weakness because they sinned just like we do. I'm so thankful that Hebrews chapter 4 ends with this, yet without sin. That Jesus is a superior priest because he is without sin. All of those Old Testament priests, Aaron and his sons, had to offer sacrifices for themselves first. And only then could they offer sacrifices for their people. Some of those guys were absolute scoundrels. When we read about priests in the Old Covenant, there are a couple of them who are pretty good guys. We think maybe about Samuel. We think maybe about Eli. We think about some others who are generally good guys. But there are some guys who were not good guys at all. Some men who served as priests in the house of God who stole from the people and abused the people and were absolutely scoundrels. But I want to tell you that even the best of them, even the best of the Old Covenant priests were sinful. They were broken and they needed sacrifices to be made for their own sins. Friends, Jesus is not like them. He is without sin. He is sympathetic to us because of temptation, but he is not sinful like us. Jesus is a better priest because he was without sin, and Jesus is a better priest because he lives forever. Jesus is a better priest because he lives forever. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 15 says, and this is clear still, if another priest arises to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The power of an indestructible life. You are a priest forever. Jesus is a superior priest because he lives forever. Later on in chapter 7, verse 23, it says, The former priests, 
that's Aaron and his sons, on the one hand existed in great numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So under the old covenant, one priest would serve until he died, and then another would come in and take his place. And you never knew what you were going to get with the next one. Was he going to be a good guy, or was he going to be a bad guy? But friends, Jesus is better because he's a priest forever. He's a priest forever. We always go to him as our mediator. We go, always go to him as the one who brings us together with the Father. He's a priest forever because he lives forever. Jesus is a better priest because he was without sin, because he lives forever, and because he's from the order of Melchizedek. He is of the order of Melchizedek. Now this is mentioned in one of the passages I just read to you, and it's a focus for the author of Hebrews. But even the author of Hebrews agrees that this stuff is difficult. That when we start talking about Melchizedek's priesthood and how that relates to Jesus, even the author of Hebrews says, this is tough. Look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. This is after he first mentions Melchizedek. He says, concerning him, that's probably a reference to Melchizedek and not Jesus. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. But I'll give it a try, quickly. When we read about Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14, we read about a type of Christ to come. He is this king and priest. He is this one who is evidently superior even to Abraham. Because what we see when he shows up on the scene is that Abraham has been out and won a great victory. And Abraham comes back with the spoils from that victory and he pays a tithe. A tenth of the spoils of this victory, he pays it to Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews says, it is always the lesser who pays a tithe to the greater. So he argues that Abraham is inferior to Melchizedek because he pays him this tithe. And he essentially argues later that even, even Aaron and Levi and all the Levitical priests were in the loins of Abraham when he paid the tithe to Melchizedek. And so that whole system, that whole system under Abraham, that whole system under Aaron, that whole system under Levi and his priests was inferior to the system of Melchizedek because it paid a tithe to Melchizedek. That's what the author of Hebrews argues. And also, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And the author of Hebrews says, the greater always blesses the lesser. It, it is always the greater who, who blesses the lesser, and Melchizedek is the one who blesses Abraham. And so he explains this whole business by saying that Melchizedek is a type of Christ to come, a superior priest, a superior system. Jesus is a better priest because he's from the order of Melchizedek. And that's hard to explain, and it's hard to understand. And so maybe it's one of those things over the next couple of weeks that you want to dig into yourself and understand, see more, study more about what does it mean that Jesus is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is a better priest of a better covenant. That's one of the things we learn from the author of Hebrews. We learn that Jesus is a priest of a better covenant. Everything in the old covenant is just a shadow of the substance of the new covenant. Everything in the Old Covenant was pointing forward to Jesus who would fulfill all of it. 
Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22 says it like this. So much the more, also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. In chapter 8, verse 6, it says, But now he, that's Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. At the end of the letter, in chapter 12, he says it like this. But you have come to Mount Zion. And I'll stop there and say, as opposed to Mount Sinai. You've come to Zion, the place of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. As opposed to Sinai, the place of the law. He says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Jesus is a better priest of a better covenant, And he brings a better sacrifice. Hundreds and hundreds of bulls and goats and lambs were slain each year in the Old Covenant. At the tabernacle or the temple, gallons and gallons of blood was poured out, sprinkled around, and none of it made the people clean. Not really. Not deep inside. Constantly animals were dying. Constantly blood was being given. And none of it made the people really clean because there was a constant need for more sacrifice. But then Jesus came. Then Jesus came. And by his one sacrifice, he really solved the problem of sin. And that is something to celebrate at Christmas time. That by his one sacrifice, Jesus really solved the problem of sin. Look at it in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. This is is scathing. If you're reading it from an Old Testament perspective, if you're reading it from a Jewish background, the author of Hebrews is saying, all the old covenant system did was remind you of your sins year after year after year. It never made you clean. It never made you perfect. It never allowed you to really draw near to God. It simply reminded you of your sins year by year by year. He goes on in verse 11 and says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, that's Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. 
not a bull or a goat or a lamb that reminds us of our sin. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. One sacrifice for all time. And then did you notice? He sat down. Those old covenant priests never sat down. There was never a chair for them to sit in. But did you notice that when we read through Revelation, there is a chair? It's a throne that Jesus sits on. Because his work of sacrifice is done. It is finished. Is that not what he said on the cross? It is finished. Not a repeated sacrifice. A once for all sacrifice that really takes away our sin. So Jesus, I want you to see, is a better priest of a better covenant with a better sacrifice. And so we can draw near to God through him. Because that's what the priest does, right? We talked about this at the beginning. When we read about it in the Old Testament, he connects the people of God with the presence of God. He serves as a mediator, putting one hand on the people and one hand on God and bringing them together. One hand on the sinful man and one hand on the holy God and bringing them together. And how does he do that? He does that by offering sacrifice. Jesus is the better priest of a better covenant with a better sacrifice. And therefore, we are invited to draw near to God through him. Like really draw near to God through him. He connects the people of God with the presence of God through his reconciling ministry. And that is exactly where the author of Hebrews goes in chapter 10, verse 19, when he says, therefore, brothers, after explaining all of this stuff about the superiority of Jesus' priesthood, he says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus... What? Nobody has confidence to go into the holy place. You read the Old Testament, you were scared to death to go into the holy place. Even the high priest was scared when he went in. Some traditions say that they would tie a rope around his ankle so that if he did something wrong and died in the presence of God, they could drag him out. He didn't go with confidence. But here, it says because we have a priest, we have confidence Read on. It says, brothers, we, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, verse 22 says, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And verse 24 says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The author of Hebrews lays out the superiority of Jesus' priesthood, a better priest of a better covenant with a better sacrifice. And then he says, because of all this, three things we can do. Number one, we draw near. Through Jesus, and only through Jesus, we can be clean on the inside and the outside. Those old covenant priests might have cleaned you up on the outside for a little while, but they could not clean you up on the inside. Jesus cleanses us on the inside and the outside. And through his blood, we have access to the holy place. You remember back in the gospel accounts of Jesus' death, that when he died, one of the gospel writers teaches us that the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. You remember that? 
Like this thing that always kept the people out of the presence of God. Only one guy, once a year, and then not without blood, could go into that holy place. When Jesus died, his sacrificial death that really dealt with sins, that veil, that barrier between God and man was torn from the top to the bottom so that we now have access to the very presence of God through Jesus Christ, our superior priest of a better covenant with a better sacrifice so we can draw near because Jesus has made a way for us. Jesus has made a way for us to have access to God, for sinful man and holy God to be together in relationship. He has made a way. And friends, I want to declare to you that he is the only way for that to happen. You cannot, you cannot get there through the old covenant. You cannot get there through the blood of bulls and goats. You cannot get to the presence of God through bulls and goats. You cannot get to the presence of God through your righteous deeds. You cannot get to the presence of God through participation in a local church. The only way to get to the presence of God is through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and your trust in his finished work. He has made a way and he is the only way and therefore I invite you to repent and believe today to turn away from your sins and trust in the finished work of Christ, your great high priest, your one sacrifice, once for all. Because we have a great high priest, we're invited to draw near. Second thing, this text teaches is that we also are called to hold fast. Because of Jesus, we hold fast because Jesus is it. He is the one. We must not go looking somewhere else. He is the better priest of the better covenant with a better sacrifice. And therefore, we must not turn away from him because there is salvation in no one else. One of the things that the author of Hebrews is, is pushing against in the whole book is people who have heard of the new covenant, the sacrifice of Christ, the superior priesthood, all of, all of these things in the new covenant, they've heard of it, they've embraced it to some level, and they are now tempted to go back to the old covenant. And he's like, no, 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 that'd be crazy. Like, why would you go back? Hold fast to Jesus because he is the only way of salvation. And, and that's a word that we need to, you might not think that's a word that you need to hear, but we absolutely need to hear that today. Because there are all kinds of pressures around us, in our culture, in our community, that are saying, oh, maybe there is a different way. Maybe, maybe, we, need, maybe we need Jesus and this or that. Or maybe we need this or that instead of Jesus. We have the best priest of the best covenant, with the best sacrifice. Anything else is JV, Joe says sometimes, right? Anything less is less. Draw, draw near and hold fast. And then it says, help each other. I don't want to say a ton about this. Just let it sit with us. Verse 24 says, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. In other words, it seems like there's a corporate element to all of this. It seems like there's a corporate element to our drawing near to God through Jesus. There's a corporate element to that. It's not just individual. It's not in isolation. It's, it's corporate. It seems like there's a corporate element to our holding fast. We, we, will, we will not let go of Jesus together, not just individually. 
We're not called to be lone rangers as we follow Jesus. So the question I want us all to wrestle with today is, how are you helping someone else walk with Jesus? I think that's a huge question right now in this season that we're in of, of distance and isolation and quarantine. I think it's really easy to get what you need. I think because of technology and all the resources that we have, it's, it's not hard for you to get what you need. But are you helping anybody else follow Jesus? How are you helping anyone else draw near, hold fast? How are you encouraging anyone else? We may have to be more creative than usual for that right now, but it's absolutely essential that we be a part of that. So let's wrestle with that question. How are we helping each other follow Jesus right now? Let's stand together and pray. Father, we do thank you for sending Jesus to be our great high priest, to be the mediator between us in all of our sin and you in all of your righteousness. We do pray that you will help us to understand and appreciate the priestly ministry of Jesus how he is the substance of that Old Testament shadow. But more than that, we pray that you will teach us to depend completely on his work, his once-for-all sacrifice to be reconciled, to be brought into right relationship with you. Help us to trust completely in the work of Christ not in anything we have in ourselves, not in the blood of bulls and goats, but only in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name.